0: A few weeks later, you had invited us to Delhi for the kickoff, I think, of the Bavisha Alliance.
1: That's right. My goodness, you have a good memory, better than mine.
0: (laughs) Well, the reason I remember this, and I was telling a few people at the retreat about this, was we got married, and literally the night of our reception is when we got on a train to come to Delhi to come to this workshop. (laughs)
1: Deval, you and Neera are really too much. I don't think you should confess that publicly.
0: <laughs> I think we need to. <laughs> so our honeymoon was, and I still remember this because we had no money. So our honeymoon was spent in a hotel outside of Delhi Station in Paharganj, where they didn't even have blankets. So we had a mattress on top of this, and the window had holes in it and rats were coming in. <laughs> And we still would come to the workshop every day and we're like, maybe they don't know. Maybe they don't know. Hopefully we don't smell.
1: (laughs) Oh, gosh, that's a terrible story.
0: We are very honored today to have Peggy Dulaney as our guest. She's the founder of Synergos, a global organization that's taking a systems approach to solving complex problems of poverty, social injustice and climate change. Peggy's mentorship and belief of serving with love and continued focus on inner work has guided Thusra for the last 20 years. First of all, Peggy, I just wanted to say thank you so much for coming to the podcast today. This is a real honor for me to have this conversation with you and share, I guess, our relationship with the rest of the world.
1: Well, thank you, Well, it's a pleasure to do this.
0: I think I'd love for our listeners to really understand sort of what brought you into philanthropy and what were some of those initial stages and what were some of the steps you've taken at an early age to get engaged and involved. Because as you know, we have a lot of people that Dasra works with, a lot of families, that next-generation givers sort of get active on the foundation side. And many of them don't know where to start. So if you don't mind sharing a little bit about how you started and what that journey was like, that would be fantastic.
1: Sure. Well, I don't think I really had any choice about getting involved in philanthropy because it was a discussion around the dinner table most nights. And even when I was very small and couldn't participate actively, my older siblings were part of the conversation. And both my mother and father had big social, environmental, economic concerns about where the world was, even back then, and you know, issues that they cared about a lot. My dad was very internationalist, and so a lot of his concerns were global. And my mother cared a lot about social justice and inequities. So I think if it wasn't already in my DNA, I was absorbing it through my skin from a very early age. And we also were given a very small weekly allowance, but we had to put at least 10% of that. At that case, it was into the church plate. Later, it branched out beyond religion. But it was simply built into the family values and the family practice.
0: How old were you when you first went to Brazil and what took you there?
1: I was 17 and my parents were eager to get me away from a boyfriend for the summer. And some Brazilian friends had come for dinner during spring break and invited me to come. So it was just completely out of the blue. And that first year I lived with them. But the condition of my coming was that I wanted to be able to do something useful. As it turned out their neighbor was a social worker who was working in a clinic in one of the favelas or squattle settlements. And they said, oh, you can go to work with her. And that was an amazing revelation to me because first of all, I was seeing a different kind of poverty than one sees in New York, much more obvious. And the clinic was largely giving shots to kids who were then going outside and playing in the sewers. And so even at the age of 17, it was clear to me that this was obviously necessary, but very much a band-aid approach. And it awakened my interest in, I wouldn't have known to call it system change or anything like that at that point, but what else could be done to understand how these issues of poverty could be addressed. I was simply the assistant to my friend who was a social worker, But I was actually giving shots and interacting with the kids. I was just learning Portuguese at the time. But with kids, you don't really need to use words all the time. So, you know, I would play with them as well as be available to do whatever was needed in the clinic.
0: And I mean, I guess had, you know, when I came to India and I started volunteering also with children initially, just because to your point, I felt uh, while I speak Hindi and Gujarati, my Hindi was not up to par to speak around. Issues such as domestic violence or rights or things that you just need a very strong command on in the language to speak about. But working with children was something that was much easier to do because that language barrier didn't exist. It was easier just to sort of work with that community. And to your point, I think for me, while growing up in the US and coming back to India, seeing that disparity in all countries, there's clearly support that communities require, a leveling of a playing field, but this sort of the kind of poverty I saw in India, and unfortunately continue to see, was very different than what I saw growing up in Houston. And so I after you sort of went back to New York, like how did that shape you and what steps did you take after that?
1: I majored in something called social studies, which was a kind of cross-disciplinary, all the different social sciences which actually gave me a pretty good grounding. I focused a lot on urban migration, because the situation in the favelas had been of migrants coming from the interior of the country. And it just gave me a good general background in understanding social systems. It was still, it was undergraduate, so it was pretty general, but it began then also to shape my view about inequities in the world. This was the 60s, and there were a lot of protests going on in which I participated, the war in Vietnam, civil rights, etc. And at that time, and I think for quite a few years after that, I viewed my role more as a grassroots activist. And that led me to really begin to notice, first of all, that those affected by poverty have the greatest interest in getting out of it. And it's not like people are just sitting around for something to happen. And my senior thesis was on the role of voluntary associations in urban migration and people's adaptation to the city. So I spent those years academically trying to understand more about the social systems. But at the same time, I had a mounting sense of the injustice of the gaps that existed and really wanted to commit myself in some way that was not yet clear to me. But what began to be clear was that without other sectors participating, that would be government or civil society, the more formal civil society, or business, together with people living in poverty, that there was no way that the poor themselves would be able to manage their own rising up in a society that was as stratified as Brazil was in those days. So that was the germ of my beginning to think about inclusive partnerships as a way forward to address these kinds of issues.
0: And at that time, sort of being in the field, seeing what's happening, and I guess connecting the dots and different stakeholders, were you also involved at all on the grant-making side of things with the Family Foundation?
1: I did join a family foundation called the Rockefeller Family Fund, which had a program that was quite unusual in those days. It was called Institutional Effectiveness, and it had areas like Accountants for Social Responsibility. So it was addressing areas of society that had not previously been involved in either philanthropy or social change and finding the people within that group, who really saw that their role and their particular skill could make a difference, as it did. So I learned a lot from that as well.
0: And so this was sort of individuals from the for profit sector or the business sector coming in and bringing their skill sets to nonprofits?
1: Correct. Correct. Yes. Which, as you probably know, accounting and financial Coherence is not always the strongest skill of nonprofits. So, this turned out to be actually quite a useful thing.
0: No, no, definitely. In fact, during COVID, we created sort of a toolkit and worked with over 250 NGOs across India to understand their balance sheets, their cash flows, to start thinking about which programs and expenses they could say no to, helping them do this analysis was so, so important for them to then have conversations with their donors and really talk about the changes that needed to happen in the grant agreements. But it really was about cash flows. And, and A lot of, I guess, what Dasra does, as you know, is bring some of those skills to NGOs because we know they're really good at what they do. But maybe we can bring some of this to them that maybe have expertise. in. And so when you started sort of thinking about bringing whether it was skills from different sectors or even individuals from different sectors together, what were some of the aha moments or even failures or frustrations, I guess, that you had with that?
1: Well, I'll give one example from before I started Synergos, which was in 1986. I worked for five years with my father, who was concerned about the social and economic state of New York City for something called the New York City Partnership. And they really should say we did succeed in bringing together business, labor, government, and civil society, but it was all at the top levels and very committed people, but We worked on separate issues. I was running the education and youth employment part of it. And we came up with wonderful solutions, but without having included in the diagnosis of the problem or the decisions about what programs we should institute, the teachers or the principals or the youth workers. And so it was on one hand, okay, at the policy level, but when it got down to how it was implemented... It was the same top-down issue that most often happens, whether from business, even NGOs very often, or government, that a decision is made at the top and then implemented. And you lose all of that creative energy of those who could be engaged and who could be immensely important in the solution of the problem. So I left that after five years with the idea of starting an organization that would promote collaborative problem-solving through partnerships, but in an inclusive way. And that was the origin of Senergos. We began working again in Brazil, and the idea was to improve child rights because terrible things were happening with children, not only just poverty, but being drawn into the drug wars and just really awful situation. And there were no, essentially no child rights in the constitution. And so we were a group of people, a few of us from Synergos, we were tiny at that point. And then my partner, Vanda Engel, who at the time had just been a high school principal and saw her graduates going into the drug wars and getting killed and realized we have to look at this from a more systemic level. So in order to begin to involve the business sector, I thought of Banco Lar, which was the Brazilian offshoot of the Chase Bank, which my dad then chaired and got somebody there to invite some of their clients to a gathering with the staff of Rodaviva, which was the name of the organization. And the staff were mostly people from the favelas. And they chose a place that was a nightclub, but it was before the nightclub opened. And I remember so clearly these Society ladies standing on one end of the room and the Viva staff on the other end, and Vanda and I going back and forth, trying to talk to both groups, encouraging some kind of conversation, which never really happened because we had no idea how to make it happen. And, you know, that was probably a bridge too wide. that time. And what we've since learned, first of all, you have to build trust to have those kinds of conversations. And secondly, we think of the notion of chains of trust. So sometimes you can't just bring together, you know, people who've never talked except for their domestic servants with someone from a favela and people living in a favela who were totally intimidated by being in that situation, either that or angry. And So you need intermediaries. And in that case, Vanda and I were the intermediaries, but it wasn't enough and it was too quick. You know, it happened. We should have done it in some other format, but those were things we learned later. And it was the beginning of realizing that it's not so easy to bridge some of these gaps. Yeah, well, what I should say is it's been a long learning process and we've been through several phases because after that experience with Rodaviva, we realized we really didn't have the skills to build partnership. And there weren't that many groups out there that we knew of who did. So what we realized was that we needed some kind of a bridge between the, let's say, the sectors that are more powerful and grassroots people and communities. And in the U.S. and Europe, there were a lot of community foundations and we saw those as really interesting, what we came to call bridging organizations, because the intent was to support communities, but the board was often comprised of people from different sectors who had reach beyond uh, their own sector and beyond the community so that they could find the connections that were needed to make something move. So for 10 years, we spent time working with these kinds of institutions to both understand how to bridge and how to create partnership. And we began to see that the leaders of those community foundations had certain skills because they could reach out beyond their own sector or their own little group. And we got fascinated with that and we started calling it bridging leadership, which is now the North Star of Synergos. And I'll come back to that in a moment. And so We began doing case studies and trying to understand better what were the qualities and came up with a few things that it took a while to figure out. But one was a capacity to listen deeply and really empathically, even if you disagreed with someone. And that made people feel validated or heard or understood, which is part of what it takes to create the kind of safe container for people who may have different views to come together and then eventually build trust and work together. But then we began to think, well, why isn't everyone a bridging leader? And what are the obstacles to become a bridging leader? And what we began to realize was that everybody has internal issues that maybe it might be fear or anger, grief, shame, any of those things that in essence represent traumas from earlier in life. And to the extent that they're protecting themselves against having those traumas re-triggered, they're, in a sense, shrinking themselves. They're not opening themselves to new experience. And certainly bridging across divides is a new experience. You know, you're going out of your comfort zone. But that led us to then really decide to focus a lot of our training of bridging leaders on the inner work that all of those potential bridging leaders needed to do to become the human beings who wanted to serve with love and who had the capacity to open their hearts without so much fear or defensiveness so that other people could really see them as genuine, authentic, but also caring and feel safe in their presence.
0: Can you Give the listeners a little bit of a sense of Snergos overall and maybe then use Bhavishya Alliance as a phenomenal example.
1: Back about 15 years, our first second round of interest in creating actual partnerships was, in fact, with the organization called Genron, which was using the methodology of the U process. And they invited us to work with them and UNICEF and a number of Indian corporates led by Hindustan Lever but also with Tata and a couple of the banks, for an effort to really try to reduce child malnutrition in the state of Maharashtra, which was very, very high. It was something like 40%, as it was in many other states of India. And nothing seemed to have been shifting that ratio. So this was a huge challenge to take on. And the state of Maharashtra government became important players as well as NGOs and the businesses. But to stick with the notion of how we develop partnerships and the importance of building a safe container and bridging across divides, 30 people were selected to be the stakeholders to come up with the proposed solutions. And in that process, I would say there were two activities that were the most important in the success that eventually happened. The first one was that the group divided into small groups of five or six people who went around the state looking at the actual circumstances of the malnourishment in communities. And they spent five days together and they were purposely diverse groups. And over the course of those five days, because they were seeing the issues and the potential solutions together, their views got closer and closer, and they got to know each other because they were spending their evenings processing what happened during the day. So we began, that was the beginning of kind of creating the mini safe containers. And then the big and most surprising thing, which is somewhat similar to the Montana retreat in which you participated this last summer, was the whole group went to the Himalayas and spent a week there together, of which three days They were asked to spend time alone with no cameras, no toys, and simply reflect on their purpose in life. And this was very scary, both the being alone, the being in the mountains, the having nothing to distract them. But it totally bonded the group. By this time, they were all scared together. They were praying for each other. Some of them even had the same dreams on the same night. And when they came back together to tell their stories... There was such excitement in seeing each other and in hearing each other's stories that it created a field of creativity because they'd moved from the kind of fear place to the curiosity place and away from judgment and really listened to each other. And then they were in the position to spin out very creative ideas, which were implemented in certain parts of the state. But somehow this atmosphere of this way of working spread to other districts in the state, resulting in the reduction in a study that UNICEF did a couple of years later of a severe stunting from 39 to 23 percent of the population in the whole state. And that was called out by UNICEF as one of the most radical changes that had happened in recent years. Unfortunately, In terms of that issue, even though there were people from other states that came and wanted to know what happened, and there's no doubt that the state government's commitment to this was a big piece of it, but the methodology didn't translate. It was so unheard of and unusual. Plus, it was not inexpensive, so that it actually never got brought in its full process to other states of India. And I think we lost an opportunity there to really make a shift that could have happened in the rest of the country. When I say we, I'm not talking about Synergos. We simply facilitated the process, but it was the participants who actually created the solutions and implemented them.
0: Thank you for sharing, Peggy. And I think we, I mean, as Lisa Stasrad, this is, again, the many ways you've inspired us and helped us. But I think just what you just said in terms of even the we, and it's everyone who's part of this in no way just the group. Dasra's perspective, at least it's never us. It's about everyone else who's doing the work. And but unfortunately, I guess it has now become a very stringent sort of regulated process, which enables or enforces companies to sort of count how many devices, for example, are given versus taking the thoughtful approach that you all had done to reduce malnutrition by double digit percentage points. And so my question, I guess, is how do funders understand the value of the processes required to build the trust versus just saying, here's the money, get it done in three months and we're finished?
1: Yes. Well, that's a complicated question that I think is actually getting easier for them to answer now as the world gets more polarized, because it's pretty hard to avoid noticing that the direction many countries are going is to further polarization rather than further coming together to solve problems collaboratively. So in our early days doing this, it was very difficult to get foundations to work in the way that we had the privilege of working, thanks largely to Unilever's support in the Bavisha Alliance. But where we started to make inroads, there's a large U.S. foundation that mostly offers technical solutions in particularly health and agriculture, and they were not getting the results that they wanted And they were beginning to realize that sometimes if the ministries that they were supporting to try to get them to go to scale with solutions were not working effectively together, that was probably part of the reason. And I had been working on people from this particular foundation for several years to try to communicate in probably less clear terminology than I'm able to say now why our approach was a needed part. Of the technical solutions but finally out of some i would say even desperation they said all right let's try this in one country with one ministry and let's choose health and that then led us to the second country where we tried this which was namibia around maternal child health and the results there although slow because it took two and a half years to get the members of the top senior team in the health ministry to even meet together. They'd never been meeting together. And then to begin to trust each other and then begin to be willing to risk talking to people outside the ministry. And so it took a long time. But again, there were genuine results. And therefore, that same foundation, when we wanted to try this elsewhere, was willing to work with us in... Ethiopia and Nigeria around agriculture for small producers. So I think we were maybe a little ahead of our time in that sense. And that's been often painful to not be able to get the traction we felt we needed. But I think that is becoming now a really recognized issue that we have to address together with the technical solutions.
0: I think another area that I know we've been speaking about quite a bit and you've been very, very active in, and you kind of touched upon it already was sort of the addressing, I guess, the inner well or container. and really openly figuring out, I guess, the traumas that have happened. And to your point, I think, at least for me, the Montana retreat was phenomenal in terms of just really being at peace to really just understand and think and focus a little bit more on something like trauma, which I all of us have, I mean, we're human, and that's part of life. And then just really figuring that out on how that has played a role in what we shape our lives to be. And at least when we speak to givers, many times, their interest areas, I guess, of giving is because of a traumatic experience that has occurred. And that's why they have the focus here. And many NGO leaders, again, something has happened, but it comes back to, I guess, the inner well-being and just mental health and well-being has clearly taken a hit over the last couple of years. And if you can speak a little bit about, you know, some of the things that we're already speaking about, but now have really come to the limelight in terms of just well-being for people in this space, because I don't think that's talked about as much.
1: So, I want to speak to it from two different perspectives. In the large programmatic initiatives where these retreats happen, but they're shorter, it's very difficult to get people to give up their cell phones for the time period and to stay focused and to trust each other. So that's in some ways much more difficult than when a group of individuals voluntarily come together because they want to go through that experience because it's painful. I mean, the fact is we build our defenses so that we won't feel the pain of whatever it was that happened to us. And so we have to do it more carefully. But the part that I've more or less led is the individual groups coming together, not necessarily with a common purpose to do something together at the end of it, but to come out with what we see as the optimal ending, which is free to and wanting to serve with love in whatever way they choose. And one of the issues I think that people face, and this isn't always because of trauma, it's sometimes because of passion for the work they do, is they burn themselves out. You know, there are various people who just they put work ahead of everything else. And it doesn't allow them the time or the freedom to reflect on How can I take care of myself so that I'll be able to continue to serve in a wholehearted, effective way, rather than just running myself into the ground? And part of this came to me because that's just what I did after 13 years of Synergos. And I then moved to Montana and lived a different life for a while and really began to reflect on that if I was going to make a contribution out there, I had to take care of myself in here. And I think for those of us who are passionate about what we do, it feels like, well, then I'm not going to be doing so well or so much, you know, we almost evaluate it in a quantitative way. But my experience with, the, uh, you know, a couple of hundred people and through these retreats is that they find a better balance and that actually by being less stressed, they're less easily triggered by things that might make them upset, and therefore they are more trustworthy to others, and therefore they're better conveners, they're better bridgers, they're better leaders. And so that it is, one could say, a certain sacrifice to agree to just take this piece of time and not deal with our usual out there work. But I would like to think, and we try to stay in contact to encourage it continuing to happen. I would like to think that it's worth it and that the people who've come through these retreats are able to be more caring of others and more caring of themselves at the same time.
0: I think it has definitely had a profound impact on me. And I think it's, to your point, the guilt of, and again, we spoke about this before too, but the guilt of, oh, but should I be, Spending a week focusing on myself, isn't that a privilege? And am I isn't that time better used serving those that I want to serve, not realizing exactly what you just said, that the creativity and the passion and especially in this field that we work in, you have to be creative. You have to commute solutions every day. You have motivated those do drop because we're human.
1: I want to give two examples of ways in which Two individuals who happened to be part of our civil society network took what they learned in the retreat and translated it into their work with enormous social impact. So one is a case in South Africa where a person who was the head of a large black run foundation worked with another foundation that actually was the foundation of the current president of South Africa on the education system in one of the states, one of the provinces of the country, which had the worst educational achievement. And in assessing the problem and talking with parents and teachers and students and administrators, it really came up that there was no social support among, let's say, teachers. And so he took them away on mini retreat in which there was no agenda other than to connect among the teachers. It created a whole different attitude among the teachers. They, they felt valued. They valued each other. They felt supported. And literally, I mean, this is amazing that something like this could have such an effect. When they did the study of why they went from second to last in the country to first, for several years in a row, the key factor was the process that the teachers went through in these mini kind of retreats where they built trust and became more vulnerable and then more authentic and then had a sense of belonging and then opened up to more creativity. So that was an amazing example of that. And we do have a case study of it. And the second is in actually the whole MENA region, although the person who led this was from Egypt, one of our key staff people, where he took it, and there's a hugely high unemployment rate in the whole MENA region, and youth unemployment particularly, those who are privileged to get through college but are not getting jobs. So he did similar things, sometimes with as many as 200 young people at a time. And I'm about to go there at the end of this month and see it for myself because it's almost unbelievable. The program was emphasizing social entrepreneurship. But of course, a lot of people don't even know what that is or don't have the self-confidence to engage. And again, by working with these youth over time, not just one meeting, but also not a week-long retreat, he was able to stimulate their, again, bondedness with each other, their trust in each other. Also, their learning about creating their own jobs that would actually have an impact on the society.
0: I mean, first of all, it's just amazing to see that level of multiplier effect. And it also in my mind, at least, it's a lot of these decisions, I guess, to invest in oneself, at least in the NGO sector, is also driven by the donors and them not enabling this to happen when the same donors realize that therapy is helpful for them <laughs> and to and just well-being, mental well-being in particular. So have you seen sort of shifts with givers to sort of start providing some level of support on this or any advice you may have with givers as well on how they can ensure the mental well-being of the organizations they support is equally as important as maybe the physical well-being?
1: Well, one of the reasons why we started these retreats, it started to be just for members of our global philanthropist circle, which, you know, over time has encompassed about 200 families from about 35 countries. And so our thinking about bridging leadership is not just for activists, it's needed in every sector of society. And if you're a donor, it means recognizing that if it worked for you, it's also necessary in these communities that are facing such hardship. So sometimes I feel a little guilty that, you know, we have this retreat that only a few people can go to and, you know, they have to get there. And unless we fund people to come, it has to be people who can pay to come. But when I begin to see the impact that has on the people who come and how they use it, because going to scale with well-being is really important right now in the world. It's the only thing that's going to shift this kind of separation and polarization. So I actually feel that it really makes sense to use this approach not only for issues relating to climate or poverty or social justice, but also for individuals whose well-being, because of their connections and their influence and often their financial assets, will be playing a role in helping others. And to the extent that they can help others with their full selves and not just their money or their particular skill, it'll really make a difference.
0: No, I couldn't agree with you more. I think one of the things we've also spoken about in the past, and you've been so generous with your time and facilitating conversations with families who have large assets, like you just mentioned, and the ability to create significant social change in the process. You've discussed sort of the pros and cons of being part of a well-known family. And if you can maybe speak a little bit about that and your own journey, I guess, in choosing the name that we all call you by even, I think, is just great for people to understand that.
1: Sure. Well, Delaney was my middle name and Rockefeller was my last name. But In my experience in Brazil, in the favelas, at some point, a friend of the family who would initially invited me found out what I was doing and they were the head of a big newspaper. And so they sent reporters to try to find me. And I was only 19. It was very traumatic for me having to escape and I hadn't been exposed to any press in my life. And so after that, for that reason, and also because I felt I needed to gain job experience on my own merits and not because of family connections, because it was, it felt as though it would be too easy to use those connections and then never know whether I was getting the job or getting whatever it was because of my family or because of my own qualifications. So for those two reasons, I dropped the last name when I was 21. And I've just kept that name ever since, even though when I moved back to New York when I was 30, and began working with my dad at the New York City partnership everyone knew that I was his daughter and by that time my identity was firm enough so that I didn't feel I didn't feel that that would be too difficult for me to handle but I would say that what has united our family over the generations has mainly been I want to call it philanthropy from the broadest perspective, love of humanity, because each succeeding generation has less money and the younger ones particularly, but they, most of them really have social or environmental commitments that they live by. So, And then I would say over the last maybe 15 years, this notion of not only doing inner work, but sharing our experiences of doing inner work has become, especially with my generation, very much a fundamental in holding us together. So that our meetings sometimes are oriented toward issues of the day, but a lot are oriented toward sharing personal experiences, things that we're going through, creating a kind of network so that if something really difficult happens to one member of the family, other members are informed so they at least know. So that was a family trip and not all of the family goes on all these trips, but it was open and it was a way that we could spend a week together seeing interesting things, but also just being together as a family. And, you know, there are these intergenerational issues and that's actually something that the Global Philanthropist Circle is designed to address as well. We have certain families that have worked through some of those issues and they have generously offered to share their experience with other families that might be having some of those issues. And we also have a strong next generation component so that those who are coming into their 20s or 30s or even 40s have their own space separate from but also as part of the whole of the Global Philanthropist Circle to participate with issues that are relevant to their generation.
0: No, Peggy, thank you so much for sharing. Given everything that's happening in the world and has happened, what continues to give you hope?
1: Strong communities. And I was thinking of mentioning this before. All this that I'm talking about, of listening and all that. Indigenous communities, and I'm thinking particularly of Africa, but I know it's not only Africa. On their own, without any support from outside, have a structure of gathering where everybody gets heard. So poverty exists in many different dimensions, and some of it is poverty with misery and other is poverty with dignity. And we don't want there to be poverty at all, but poverty with dignity is definitely better than poverty with misery. And so to the extent that we can find those communities that are mobilizing themselves and connect with them and the successes they're having and spread those successes and connect them with other communities that maybe haven't gotten there yet to understand just between themselves what they could be doing differently. It's going to have to come much more from the ground up, especially during a time when the bulls are fighting and crushing the ants up above and So that energy of communities, together with this emerging consciousness about the importance of well-being for everyone, and the emergence of methods that I think can counteract the polarization, continues to give me hope.
0: Thank you so much, Peggy. I really appreciate all that you continue to do and all that you've done for us as an organization, including spending our honeymoon with you and the Jenneron team.
1: You're very welcome. I enjoyed the conversation.
0: Find us at dasra.org forward slash NCE for more details. Subscribe to No Cost Extension on your favorite podcast platform.